Alright guys, welcome. A couple things. If you hear dogs barking very lightly in the background, sorry. I bring them wherever I go. Second, if you hear papers rustling, sorry. Um, I can't remember shit. I apologize. Um, first, well, wanna, first I want to take a little bit of time today and I want to talk about two missing person cases that... Uh, you know, it's sad enough that you see these types of cases all over the, the world, but these two cases are actually in, in the air at my hometown, basically, in, in the within 15, 20 miles of one another. Uh, one of them has uh, been... pretty mainstream. I know it's got some exposure on the um, on primetime type settings. ABC, HLN uh, involves a, a 15 month old toddler um, and she'd been reported missing a couple weeks back. Um, and I'll get into just, there's not a lot of information on these cases but I want to give you what I have and then just Two days ago, we have a, a missing woman that uh, went missing in Knox, Knoxville, Knox County. She lives in Dandridge, Tennessee, which is Jefferson County, Tennessee. And uh, some strange circumstances there. We don't have a great deal of information on that case, but I felt that with what platform I do have, I just want to give what information that I have in hopes that, you know, it may help. Uh, I want to go over just a couple things real quick before we kind of do a, a kind of a summary on, on these two uh, missing person cases here. Um, you know, I want to give a shout out to uh, Payne Lindsay. I know he's absolute big time and he is the podcast guru. He's the man. But um, I did not realize what a bad MFer he is until I watched the episode of Up and Vanished on Oxygen. And um, he's going to whip Catfish, Catfish Jack, Catfish Joe, Catfish John's ass. And it was coming. Uh, I believe if the cameras weren't there, he'd have got out and whipped his ass. But I'm telling you right now, he is not one to be messed with. He is... I mean, and it takes that to get into to the trenches and, and go where he goes and, and to do what he does. So, man, I, I think he does amazing work. Uh, second, I want to give a, a shout-out, per se, to Melissa from Just the Tipsters. Uh, I want to make it abundantly clear that she is funny, and she is funny as hell. And that's just, the, that's just it. So we'll see no more um, reviews stating that... Uh, Mark, Melissa, either one are, are not funny. Now, you can call them stupid, uh, or apparently, or anything else, but by God, they better be funny. So, And I want to reiterate that they are funny, funny as hell. So, if you liked our podcast, I mean, I'd like to get a little, I know a review is one thing. Uh, Apple has the five-star, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeart, Google Play, all these other other formats wherever you get your podcast music whatever and you tune in to this podcast 
give us a five star, five dog, whatever it is. I, I know I know five star. I use that as the the base because it's what I'm used to. It may not be a damn star, and if it's not, we want five of whatever it is. And if they offer six, that's fine too. But you know what I mean when I say five star. Okay, a Yelp review, whatever. It doesn't matter. We want a perfect score. And wherever you listen, you don't have to give us a review, talk about how amazing I am or how country I sound or I'm a fucking hillbilly. I mean, you can, but we just want some kind of uh, acknowledgement that we are doing a decent job. Now, if you don't like it, you know the, the whole the thing is if someone is unhappy with something, they tell 100 people if they love it or content and happy, they'll tell seven. So if you don't like it, tell the hundred people. Just leave out the part where you hate it, okay? So let them listen and make their own damn judgment, but at least tell them. And, uh, I mean, leave us five stars if you hate it. I mean, hell, you've never told a lie? I mean, shit, is it going to kill you just to hit that fifth star instead of the third or the first? And I say star could be whatever. Could be head, little headphones, bottles. It doesn't matter. And third... I want to say I love my family. I thank God for my family. And please be kind to one another. This is the weekly podcast. All right, first, I want to tell you about a case. Out of Sullivan County, Tennessee, this case has really um, tugged. It's either tugged at your heartstrings or it has pissed you off. And this is uh, basically the timeline in the case of missing toddler Evelyn May Boswell. Um, she was uh, reported missing. in February, so was last seen in December. So basically, Evelyn May Boswell is reported missing by her grandfather on February the 18th of 2020. But authorities say that 15-month-old Tennessee girl was last seen sometime in December. Uh, I believe the babysitter had confirmed somewhere around the 10th or the 11th of December. So... Her mother, Megan Maggie Boswell, is questioned by police, and they want to know why it took several weeks or months to for her to report the child missing. So at that moment, they issue an Amber Alert, and authorities from multiple agencies begin searching for the missing toddler. Um, so the mom next, Megan or Maggie, uh, according to her Amber Alert. Uh, Evelyn is two feet tall, weighs 28 pounds. She has blonde hair and blue eyes. She was last seen wearing a pink track suit, pink shoes, and a pink bow. In interviews with local media, Maggie Boswell describes her missing daughter as happy and smart and tearfully says that she wants her daughter back. Um, She also kind of smirks and snickers. and It's really hard to watch because you... I mean, the situation itself is is odd, to say the least. Uh, I mean, even if you're the shittiest mother or father in the world, I mean, your child has been missing for months, 
And let's say you know that she's somewhere and she's safe. And you're just trying to pull a scam. I'm saying I'm not saying what, that's what that is, but are you going to give an interview and snicker and laugh and like and and I just wonder if maybe if it's just not. I mean, because the way kids are these days, early she's just turned I guess 18. They're, they don't have any much sense anyway. But it's, this is a strange case. Um, a reward of more than 50000 I think it's well over sixty, is offered for information leading her whereabouts. Um, the sheriff of Sullivan County actually kick-started that off by giving $1,000 of his own money. Now, in the Amber Alert, officials say they have information that indicates that people traveling in a gray 2007 BMW with Tennessee plate 3M96W9 and front-end damage might have information in the disappearance of the toddler. Authorities in five states begin looking for the car. It is finally located on February 21st in North Carolina. Uh, the people that were driving the vehicle were arrested uh, to find folks. Uh, they did find the BMW. They arrested two people. Uh, one of them is Evelyn's a maternal grandmother, which is Maggie's mother, Angela Boswell. She and another man, William McLeod, are charged with possession of stolen property. Authorities do not publicly explain what the connection to Evelyn's disappearance. Boswell and McLeod are held without bond. Neither has entered a plea. Court records do not name attorneys authorized to speak on their behalf. I do know that McLeod is still in custody, and I know that Angela Boswell has made bond and was the news, local news stations were there when she walked out. She did not make a statement and seemed extremely irritated and agitated that they were there trying to find her granddaughter. Now, there has been statements come out that Maggie Boswell, uh, Evelyn's mother, child's mother, uh, she's 18, and her boyfriend had sold this car to them, and somehow in the mix of all this starting to go on, they gave that information knowing that you know they probably wouldn't find them over in North Carolina whatever maybe and they did I'm not sure I have read reports that the car was being sold to them and that basically they had no idea that they had reported it on an Amber Alert and stolen I believe it was uh, Megan's boyfriend's mother's vehicle either way they're arrested Angela's out on bond now the sheriff says that the mother gave inaccurate information, that being Maggie Boswell, the mother of Evelyn, the missing toddler. In a series of press conferences, Sullivan County Sheriff Jeff Cassidy tells the reporters that the toddler's mom, Maggie Boswell, is giving conflicting and inaccurate statements to authorities and claims that he is com confounded by many of her answers, which I've seen a few of her interviews, and I freaking, I'm it's... It's, uh, Lord, I don't even know what to say. It's terrible. It's terrible. I, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to begin if she's either the most cold-hearted and ruthless murderer, killer on earth, or she's a terrible actor and knows exactly where her child is and knows that everything is okay. I, I can't even watch them. Uh, she's, there's inaccurate statements, stories all over the place. Uh, he can't even believe half the shit's coming out of her mouth. I'm certain, certain of that. Uh, still, Cassidy says he's hopeful that the toddler's still alive and finding Evelyn is their main concern. He states, finding Evelyn is our main concern and top priority at this time. Um, 
Now, the mom, in an interview with WJHL on February 24th, Maggie says that she believes her own mother, Angela Boswell, has kidnapped the child and taken her to a campground in Virginia. Now, quote, Maggie says, I told the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation where to find her in Mendota, Virginia. She tells the station, quote, my mom took her to a campground in a silver camper. If they don't go tonight, I'm going to go find her myself because I've told them and they're not really like taking it seriously. My mom did threaten me like, you know, if I told anybody, I'm not going to get into that. But she did, unquote. In a separate interview with WCYB, she says that she would be willing to take a polygraph but claims is unable to because of uh, policy with the department of her being pregnant. She comes out, gives an interview. I can't say, she says, because of... Uh, I tried to give one, but the department policy department. So she was insinuating she's pregnant. Now, mom is arrested, Maggie Boswell, February 25th. They have charged her with making false statements to police. She's booked on a $25,000 bond and is taken to the Sutherland County Jail. It is there, I guess, where she receives a pregnancy test. She is not pregnant, so we're not sure why she said that. And Sullivan County Sheriff has stated they have not even asked her to take a polygraph. They don't even have a polygraph examiner, they said. So, she is in jail on a $25,000 bond for making a false statement. She has a court hearing today at 1.30. Um, so once I get her to the jail like he said the sheriff uh, Jeff Cassie said every time we talk to her her story changes uh, and I'm serious about that he says every single time Bosworth has not yet entered a plea in court records do not reflect an attorney um, since the Amber Alert has went out um, authorities have searched a pond in North Carolina so I think it's hours after Maggie Boswell was arrested on the 25th. Authorities began searching a pond in Wilkes County, North Carolina. While authorities don't reveal any details of what they're looking for, Sullivan County Sheriff Jeff Cassie says that they are following a credible lead. Authorities from both Tennessee and North Carolina send divers into the pond. Uh, no trace of evidence is found. Also, police in Sullivan County searched the crawl space or underpinning area of a, in the, in a, of a mobile home uh, that... Uh, Maggie had previously lived in. It's believed that the father owned several mobile homes up in that area. I believe they had removed a pillow and some styrofoam from underneath a mobile home in that area. No information on that. Now, like I said, this is a local case. So I had a lady yesterday tell me that she, that I, I I don't know if you go to Walmart. Maybe you're not uh, you're too sophisticated for that but whatever I go and uh, I have a family member that was there and says that the grandmother was in Walmart as people were cussing her out and spitting at her now you can agree you can disagree I personally don't believe that is going to do any good whatsoever I believe that I mean especially us we're not in I mean if can you imagine how some of the family feels that actually now from some of the family that I've seen, I've not, I don't know all of them, but I'm sure some of them are devastated with what's going on. Um, you know how they feel about it. I, I know that, uh, me personally, I would not do such a thing, but I also, I mean, this, this case has a lot of attention on it. 
So we're talking a local station had a quarter million, half a million, between a quarter million and half a million views on its on its site. So it's it's uh, it's she's got her face out there. Let's just say, and the way she acted when she came out of jail, I don't know that that helped her cause either. So I mean, that's kind of where that. I mean, there's different. Uh, you know, Facebook groups and things like that, that, uh, you know, you might run across some different information. Um, I'd seen where somebody had put on there, they'd f- had the road blocked off and had a, a mattress and some other stuff. So, I mean, it's really hard to know what's, what's fact and what's not, but what we know right now is, uh, Megan's not giving any information it's also stated that the sheriff stated when we addressed those conflicting statements with Megan, she said, I was trying to protect my mom, uh, maybe in hopes, oh, well, she'd just tell them where Evelyn was, but obviously she's not going to, Boswell said. Megan Boswell has multiple social media accounts addressed that in our interview saying, uh, quote, because I break phones a lot and I forget the password, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I'm really bad about remembering my passwords. Now I have them all set to one, but you know, up until that point, I just, you know, I just couldn't remember the passwords to them, so I'll just make a new one when I got a new phone. You know, you know what I mean? Uh, Evelyn Boswell's father, a 15-month-old toddler, is currently serving in, in the United States military. Uh, Megan Boswell states that she's been in contact with the father during the ongoing search. She says he's trying to get leave, to, uh, get approved to come up here right now. Quote, yeah, he's actually trying to get leave approved right now to come up here and try to, you know, help a finder. She's only been around him a couple times because of where he was in the Army. Um, now, as the news station spoke with Boswell Monday night, uh, she said the last time she had contact with her mother was Wednesday, February the 19th. Um, Megan Boswell was quoted saying, whenever the Amber Alert went out, I think that was, I mean, she was just going off on me and wanting to go to Mendota, and I kept telling her, if Evelyn's in Mendota, then just take me to her. I will take her up there. We can just end this right now. Let me make this simple. Just give me my child back right now before this gets blown out of proportion. And she would never be like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm taking you. She would just be like, you don't need to talk to them. I don't want you going up there and, and like stuff like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I was like, okay, well, if you're not going to take me to or pull over and I will have like somebody on Sullivan County's end come get me to go up there and talk to them, Boswell said. Um, they'd ask her, of course, if any rumors going around she wanted to address. And uh, Megan uh, Boswell stated that she wanted to talk about the fact that her family identifies as gypsies. She says gypsies are not a cult. They've been asking people if there's like a gypsy ringleader and like, I mean, like, uh, this is a quote, like, we're not ringleaders, we're not, like, out here kidnapping babies or anything like that, well, yeah, and, like, my dad's very proud of that, you know, but he's just mad about all the rumors going around, like, trashing them because we're not a cult, you know what I mean, we're not, like, nothing like that at all, Boswell said, so, I mean, I, I, I don't know anything about some of the family members, that I don't know what they're going through, I, don't know how this situation is going to end, but I know that there is a tremendous amount of pressure on these folks to produce a child, to produce some information concerning this child, and people are getting, I mean, it's, I, it's, they're, 
like I said, either tugs at their heartstrings or um, uh, people do crazy shit. I'm telling you. Um, you know, of course, TBI and Sullivan County uh, Sheriff's Office so I warned about misinformation on social media, like I just stated a minute ago. Um, one of them was they stated regarding the information in the above story Megan provided to News Channel 11 about Evelyn's possible whereabouts. Sullivan County officials said late Monday night, this is to let you know that the campground in Mendota, Virginia has been checked regarding the information that Megan Boswell provided to you during her interview earlier this evening. There was nothing located as these locations were checked. So, if you have any information concerning Evelyn Boswell's whereabouts or any information whatsoever concerning Evelyn Boswell, Maggie Boswell, Call 1-800-TBI-FIND. That's 1-800-TBI-FIND. Of course, agents and detectives continue to work around the clock in an effort to find her. And that's really, you know, you've got some different people that are gathering to do prayer vigils. Uh, Tangled Hair and Studio and Tanning, I think they're getting foods and stuff like that together to help uh, first responders and uh, detectives and things like that. Um, they're doing, let's see, ward information, $61,150. Like I said, the sheriff, um, and basically the, uh, the sheriff in his final statement that, uh, he's just in this case, reiterating that, the child was last confirmed seen in December, December the 10th or the 11th. The daughter, I'm sorry, the 15-month-old child's mother, Maggie Boswell, did not report her missing. The grandfather got concerned when he hadn't seen her for a month, month and a half, contacted DCS. DCS then contacted Megan, and from there, it was a missing persons report was filed and the Amber Alert was issued. Over 700 tips have come in so far and nothing has panned out that has been, that we know of, we'll say. Um, the mother and grandmother are both in jail. The grandmother has since bonded out. Uh, charges related to the case, not strictly related to the disappearance, but somewhat related. So, if you have any information, contact TBI, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. Any information concerning Evelyn Boswell, 15-month-old, contact Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, 1-800-TBI-FIND. She has blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, let's see if I've got anything else here. Like I said, there's not much with this. This case is strange. It's one of those cases, it's, it's, your heart breaks, but it's so different that you, you're just stunned by some of it. It just, it just blows my mind. It really does. So, I just pray that this young, young child is found safe, and, uh, I hope everything, uh, I pray that the, the authorities are able to, uh, able to find her, um, and then just the other day, 
we've got a missing person, a um, young woman, 48-year-old Tiffany Troll, that's T-I-F-F-A-N-Y, Troll, T-R-U-L-L, 48, was last seen near Cherokee Farms. However, the tweet, the Knoxville Fire Department did not indicate the search was for toll. Basically what had happened, I believe she talks to, this is, we don't have a great deal of information on this case. Two days ago, three days ago, she was last spoken to. She was last seen at around 9 a.m. in the morning. And I believe she speaks to her father-in-law in early afternoon, around 3 or 4, stating that there's some kind of car trouble. Someone had stopped to help. Now, her husband is able to make contact with her at around 4 o'clock, somewhere in that neighborhood. And when he speaks to her, he says she sounds real confused, not making a lot of sense. And then she's not on the phone. So she vanishes. No one, no one's seen her. Now, later on that evening or the next day, they find her car. It's a 2000, 2012 Honda Accord. Located on the University of Tennessee Knoxville campus on Alcoa Highway near the Cherokee Farms. The last ping on her phone was around 11 p.m. the night of her missing, or going missing, around Neyland Stadium. Now, across from where the car was found, they found her phone and found clothing of her strode about on the shoreline. So when they find the vehicle, the keys and her belongings are in it. She is gone. The car runs fine. So her and her phone are gone. But later on, they find the phone and her, some of her clothing along the shoreline there around Fort Loudon Lake. So she was last, say, say she's uh, five foot two, 148 pounds. Her name is Tiffany Troll. She is from Jefferson County, Tennessee. She was last seen at 9 a.m. She was last spoken to around 4 p.m. This is two to three days ago. So when the husband did speak to her, she sounded disoriented and confused. When they got the last ping off her phone, it had pinged near Needland Stadium around 11 p.m. They find the vehicle the next day. Her keys, her purse are in the vehicle. Now, down the way near the shoreline, they find her phone and some of her clothing. Now, earlier on, you heard me say that she had stated she's having car trouble. When they find this car, the car runs just fine. So we've got a 
Tiffany Troll, 48 years old, was last heard from talking to her husband on the phone. She sounded disoriented, said she was having car trouble. There was some a, a man there or someone there to help her. No one hears from her after that. Her phone was last pinged at 11 p.m. that night around Neyland Stadium. Someone had made a statement that they believed they saw her somewhere around in the Nine-ish area around Bailey's in Old City. Then they find her vehicle, University of Tennessee, Alcoa, near Cherokee Farms. The keys are in it. Her purse is in it. The vehicle runs fine. Down the way at Shoreline, Fort Loudon Lake, they find clothing and her cell phone. If, let's find the number. If you have any ideas, if you have anything, uh, any kind of constructive, important, or even if you don't think it's important information, if you have any kind of information concerning Tiffany, or if you've seen Tiffany Troll, contact 911 or the Jefferson County Central Dispatch at 1-865-475-6855. Now, like I said, we there is not much on this story. I've tried to, to, to look and keep up with it. You can go on Facebook, Missing Person Tiffany Troll. Um, now, the Knoxville Police and Fire have searched parts of that that body of water out there, and they've, they've not found anything. Also, uh, they had the helicopter up and uh, doing police searches around the Fort Loudon Lake area. Prayers to the family. We, God, we hope that uh, you find her and everything is well. I just want to tell you all what I know. I don't know a lot. I'm sorry. I just felt it on my heart to at least give you the information that I do have. This this case is just a few days old. And so some of it's trickling out a little at a time. But let me reiterate one more time what we know. Tiffany Troll, 48, 5 foot 2, 148 pounds. Make sure you got this right. Yep, 5 foot 2, 148 pounds. Was last seen wearing blue jeans. Sorry. For All right. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office is requesting assistance in searching for Tiffany Troll, 48. Troll was last seen wearing blue jeans, a blue long sleeve shirt, and a white hoodie. Um, the Sheriff's Office said Troll is five foot two, five foot two inches tall, and weighs 148 pounds. The de- deputy said her vehicle was located on the University of Tennessee Knoxville campus on Alcoa Highway. If you see Tiffany, contact 911, or if you have any information, or contact Jefferson County Central Dispatch 1-865-475-6855. So, like I said, when the husband spoke to her, she sounded disoriented, confused, then nothing from her since then. Uh, stating she had car trouble, stating that someone was helping her. Um, then the phone is, uh, she's possibly seen that night at 9-ish uh, around Old City, Bailey's. Her phone last pings around 11-ish, uh, Neyland Drive. Then they find her vehicle that next day. Uh, the keys are in it, purse are in it, and the vehicle runs just fine. Then down from the vehicle, at, I think it's at Cherokee, uh, Cherokee Lake, it is Cherokee Farms, I'm sorry, near Fort Loudon Lake. They find her phone and some articles of clothing. Tiffany Troll, T-R-U-L-L. Go to Facebook, type in Tiffany Troll Missing, and uh, if you want to put 
get into uh, finding out some different information or giving your information. But any kind of information you have, please contact authorities. We'll be right back. Have you watched Mindhunter on Netflix? I have. And I think that it's an amazing show. And what I also think is that the portrayal of Edmund Kemper on that show is... That man does a fine job. It kind of puts into light just like a sociopath or psychopath. What, Just how how engaging and how nice and thoughtful and, and how they can just fool you because Edmund Kemper seems like one of the nicest serial killers you'll ever meet. The co-ed killer, the co-ed butcher. Edmund Kemper is one of the very reasons there is a BAU between Robert Ressler and, well, it was Robert Kest. I'm sorry, shoot, Robert Ressler. Of course, you know, you have John Douglas, our founders when it comes to behavior. And of course, like Mindhunter, they go out and they interview serial killers as to wonder why they do what they do, what makes them tick, and I guess they have a series of questions, but it's, during wrestler's interview with Kemper that uh, he can't, he realizes he's in there by himself and can't get guards in there. And it's at that point that he has the anxiety and gets a little nervous. But Kemper says, you know, he could kill him right there. He's, he says he's just kidding. He continues to interview him. But Edmund Kemper is one of the very reasons in my opinion that there is a BAU. Now I'm not the final judgment on what the freaking BAU, the history of it, it's just my opinion. So I've seen a uh, website said top 10 cases that shaped the BAU. Number 10 was George Metzke. If I'm not pronouncing any of these right, I'm sorry. You can correct me. Sorry. Number 9, Ted Bundy. Number eight, John Wayne Gacy. Number seven, Richard Chase. Number six, Wayne Williams, who's never been charged with but just the two adult murders. He was uh, supposedly responsible for all the Atlanta child murders. Number five, Joseph Paul Franklin. Number four, Edmund Kemper. Number three, John Jubert. Jubert. Number two, John Krutschke, Krutschke. And number one, Jeffrey Dahmer. And with the keen eye that I have, folks, I have noticed that out of ten of these names, six of them start with a J. And that's weird to me. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born December 18, 1948. Now, he is an American serial killer, and he also was a necrophile who had murdered 10 people. 
including some of his family. And we'll get into that now. He was born in California. Uh, Ed Kemper had a uh, disturbed upbringing. His parents divorced and he moved to Montana with his abusive mother uh, as a child before returning to California where he had, uh, had run away to find his dad. So Kemper was really... Edmund Kemper III was really close with his dad, and when his mom and dad got divorced, he goes with her. She's an alcoholic. She's verbally abusive, just abusive in many ways. He sneaks off, runs away, runs back to California to find his dad, thinking his dad's going to be like the prodigal son. Here's my son. He's come back home, but no, no. His dad was already remarried, and he had a, another son he was into, and it just uh, it destroyed Edmund Kemper. Um. So he's uh, returned to his mother. So his mother locks him in the basement because uh, he has some very strange behavior. Um, he likes to do certain things with his sister's dolls. He uh, tears their heads off. He several disturbing things. So she locks him in the basement because she's afraid he's going to rape or molest his sisters. Like I said, he was born in Burbank, California, December 18, 1948. He was a middle child and the only son born to Clarnell Elizabeth Kemper and Edmund Emil Kemper II. Edmund II was a World War II veteran who, after the war, tested nuclear weapons in Pacific Proving Grounds before returning to California, where he worked as an electrician. Clarnell often complained about Edmund's second menial electrician job, and he later said suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her, and that Clarnell affected him more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front did. And that's saying something. Edmund Kemper III weighed 13 pounds as a newborn. Edmund III was a head taller than his peers by the age of four. Early on, he exhibited Antisocial behavior such as cruelty to animals. At the age of 10, he buried a pet cat alive. Once it died, he dug it up, decapitated it, and mounted its head on a spike. Kemper later stated that he derived pleasure from successfully lying to his family about killing the cat. And at the age of 13, he killed another family cat when he uh, perceived it to be favoring his younger sister, Alan Kemper, born 1951, over him and kept pieces of it in his closet until his mother found them. He had a dark fantasy. He performed rituals with his uh, younger sister's dolls that uh, cultivated in him removing their heads and hands, and on one occasion when his elder sister, Susan Huey Kemper, who passed away in 2014, teased him and asked him why he did not try to kiss his teacher, he replied, if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. He also recalled that as a young boy, he would sneak out of his house and armed with his father's bayonet, go to his second grade teacher's house to watch her through the windows. He stated in later interviews that some of his favorite games to play as a child were gas chamber and electric chair, in which he asked his younger sister to tie him up and flip an imaginary switch, and then he would tumble over and writhe on the floor, pretending that he was being executed by gas inhalation or electric shock.
he had a near-death experience as a child once when his elder sister tried to push him in front of a train and another when he she successfully pushed him into the deep end of a swimming pool where he almost drowned. Now, like I said, Kemper was super close with his father and was totally devastated when his parents separated in 1957, causing him to be raised by Clarnell in Helena, Montana. Now, see, she, according to Kemper II, she was worse than the nuclear uh, warfare. Now, he had several, no, I'm sorry, he had a severely dysfunctional relationship with his mother, a neurotic, domineering alcoholic who would frequently belittle, humiliate, and abuse him. Clarnell often made her son sleep in a locked basement for fear he would harm his sisters, regularly mocked him for his large size. He stood six foot four by the age of 15 and uh, called him a real weirdo all the time. She also refused to show him affection out of fear that she would turn him gay and told her son he reminded her of his father and that no woman would ever love him. Kemper later described his mother as a sick, angry woman, and it has been postulated that she suffered from borderline personality disorder. Now, at the very young age of 14, Kemper ran away from home in an attempt to reconcile with his father in Van Nuys, California. Once there, he learned that his father had remarried and had a stepson. And Kemper stayed with his father for a short while until the elder Kemper sent him to live with his paternal grandparents. The mom couldn't couldn't watch him. The dad didn't want him. So you're going to the paternal grandparents, which were his mother's parents. Now, they lived on a ranch in the mountains of Northfolk. Kemper hated living in Northfolk. He described his grandfather as senile and said that his grandmother was constantly emasculating him and his grandfather. Now, he sat there and listened to that shit as, as long as he could take it. So, in his mind, on August the 27th, 1964, the only thing he could do was when Kemper and his grandmother, Maud Matilda Huey Kemper, was uh, sitting at the kitchen table and, and uh, she and him were uh, in a heated argument. Enraged, Kemper stormed off and retrieved a rifle that his grandfather had given him for hunting. He then re-entered the kitchen and fatally shot his grandmother in the head before firing twice more into her back. Now, some accounts also mention that she had suffered multiple post-mortem stab wounds with a kitchen knife. Now, when Kemper's grandfather uh, returned home from the store, Edmund Emil Kemper, Kemper went outside. I, I told that wrong. That's his father's mother and father. Sorry. When Kemper's grandfather, Edmund Emil Kemper, returned from gr the grocery store, Kemper went outside and fatally shot him in the driveway because uh, he said he didn't want him to have to go in and find his dead wife and realize that his grandson had done it. So he'd done it out of um, to spare him the pain. That's his story. So he's not really sure what to do now, so... Um, he phoned his mother, and of course she urged him to contact local police, which he did. Kemper then uh, called the police and uh, waited to be taken into custody. Now when the authorities were questioning Kemper, he said that uh, he just wanted to see what it felt like to kill Grandma, 
and testified that he killed his grandfather so that he would not have to find out that his wife was dead. A psychiatrist Donald Lund, who interviewed Kemper at length during adulthood, wrote that with these murders, in his way, he had avenged the rejection of both his father and his mother. Kemper's crimes were deemed incomprehensible for a 15-year-old to commit, and a court psychiatrist diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic before sending him to Astacadero State Hospital, a maximum security facility that houses mentally ill convicts. Now, I'm sorry if I butchered this word. At Atacadero, at the California Youth Prison, or not a prison, it's a hospital, mental hospital, the California Youth Authority, the psychiatrists and social workers disagreed with the court psychiatrist's diagnosis, and their report stated that Kemper showed no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking, because he knew what to say. This, as you'll find out, the man was diagnosed as a genius. He knew what to say, how to say it, what to do to get out. So they also observed him to be extremely intelligent and introspective. The initial testing measured his IQ at 136, over two standard uh, deviations above average. He was re-diagnosed with a less severe condition, a personality trait disturbance, passive-aggressive type. Later on at the uh, mental hospital, he was given another IQ test, which gave him an even higher score of 145. Now, Kemper endured himself to these psychiatrists by he was a model prisoner. He was everything they wanted him to be. He was trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. And one of his psychiatrists later said he was a very good worker, and this is not typical of a sociopath. He really took pride in his work. He, uh, Kemper also became a member of the JCs while in the, the hospital, and he said that he developed some new tests and some new scales on the Minnesota Multifacet Personality Inventory, specifically on overt hostility scale during his work with the psychiatrist. Now, later on, when he's arrested again as an adult, he, Kemper said that being able to understand how these tests function also allowed him to manipulate his psychiatrist and admit that he, uh, he learned a lot from the sex offenders to whom he actually gave and administ administered these tests to. For example, they told him it was best to kill a woman after raping her to avoid leaving a witness. They, they were going through all their crimes, and he was taking bits from every everybody else and forming it into what the psychiatrist needed to hear to give him this. December 18, 1969, his 21st birthday, Kemper was released on parole from Atacasadero. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Atacasadero. Whatever. Now, against the recommendations of psychiatrists at the hospital, he was released into the care of his loving, alcoholic, abusive, shitty mother, Clarnell, who had remarried, taken the surname Strandberg, and then she was divorced again. Now, she lived over at 609A Ord Street, Aptos, California, and a short drive where she worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Now, 
Kemper had later demonstrated he was on parole. He wasn't like Scott Free. Later demonstrated further to his psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated. And on November the 29th, 1972, he, he was so good at this that his juvenile records were permanently expunged. And the last report from his probation psychiatrist reads this. If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we are dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or to any member of society. And, since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expungement of his juvenile records. Now that should tell you how manipulative and smart, and, and I know it's, not, it's used for bad, by no means am I praising him, but I'm going to tell you, to shoot and kill your own grandparents, and then by the end of your few years that you spend, you basically got a letter from the top psychiatrist at this facility stating what a wonderful and amazing person you've become. So now he's with his mother. He's attending the community college in ordinance with his parole requirements, and he hoped he would become a police officer, but what rejected him uh, wasn't because he had killed his grandparents because he was in a psychiatric hospital because his record was expunged. The only thing that kept him from being a police officer was the fact that he was six foot nine inches tall. And could you imagine the abilities and the access this man would have had, had if he had become a police officer? So he wasn't allowed to become a police officer because he was too tall, which led to his nickname Big Ed. Now, Kemper maintained relationships with Santa Cruz police officers despite his rejection to join the force and became a self-described friendly nuisance at a bar called the Jury Room, which was a popular hangout for local law enforcement officers. They all knew him. They liked him. They knew him. He knew them. They were friends. Now, he just worked a series of menial jobs before he secured employment with the State of California Highway Department, now known as the California Department of Transportation. Now, during this time, his relationship with his mother, Clarnell, remained toxic and hostile, uh, with mother and son basically having frequent arguments with their neighbors, often have to overhear it. Uh, Kemper later described the arguments he had with his mother around the time, stating, My mother and I started right in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fist with a man but this was my mother, and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. But she insisted on it, and just over stupid things. I can remember one roof razor was over whether I should have my teeth cleaned. Now, he had saved enough money. He had moved out to live with a friend in Alameda. Now, he still complained he couldn't get away from his mother 100% because, you know, she would regularly call him. Uh, she'd pay him surprise visits. Of course, he was often broke. Uh, wasn't good with his money, uh, which meant he was calling her for financial support or having to eventually return to his mother's apartment in Aptos. Um, 
at a Santa Cruz Beach, Kemper met a student from Turlock High School whom he became engaged. Now, this is a real short part of his life because I believe, well, it says here, uh, became engaged to her in uh, March of 1973. Now, the engagement was broken off after Kemper's second arrest, and his fiancée's parents requested that her name would not be revealed to the public. And I've, I've, I've not read anywhere to where I know what I've never seen that name in any publication. I've got three different publications right in front of me. Um, now, the same year, just, just a little bit more backstory on him. The same year he began working for the highway department, Kemper was hit by a car while he was riding a, his motorcycle that he rode around on. Uh, his arm was badly injured in the crash. He received $15,000, which is approximately 90000 in 2019 when adjusted for inflation. In a settlement with a civil suit filed against the other car's driver. As he was driving uh, around now in a 1969 Ford Galaxy that he had bought with part of that settlement money. And, of course, he noticed, and this was the 60s, early 70s in California, he noticed a large number of young women hitchhiking. And, uh, of course, he began thinking about those thoughts that he had always had. And I guess... At some points, he was able to keep them at bay. I know from the time he got out from killing his grandparents to the first incident was a few years. So as he's got his car and he's driving around, he's seeing these hitchhikers. He's thinking about it. He's thinking about it. He begins storing plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs in his car. And so then he begins to pick up women. And he'll take them peacefully, letting them go where they want to go. And he'd done that about 150 times, he said. And he would just go a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further, before he finally just had the homicidal rage, urges, little zapples, zapples he called them, and then he began acting on them. And what he had done is he'd done, he, he drove 150 women around. Like You could imagine he probably had an opportunity to kill every one of them. But maybe he would start by not taking one to exactly where they wanted to go, pushing that boundary. And then he would go off into the middle of nowhere, pushing that boundary. Then he would maybe tie one. He would just go a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, until May the 7th, 1972, Kemper was driving in Berkeley when he picked up two 18-year-old hitchhiking Fresno State students, Mary Ann Pish and Anita Mary Lucheza, Lucheza, on the pretext of taking them to Stanford University. After driving for an hour, he'd managed to reach a secluded wooded area near Alameda, now, which he was extremely familiar with this area because he worked for the highway department and was out there a lot. So without alerting his passengers that he had changed directions from where they had wanted to go, here he had stopped and handcuffed these two young women and had them in the trunk. So he then began to stab and strangle um, Mary Ann P-E-S-C-E -E, to death before killing Lucheza in a similar manner. Now he'd later confessed that while he handcuffed Pish, 
Now, I'm sure curious on how to really pronounce this. So I'm going to say Marianne. And confess while handcuffing Marianne, uh, he had brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts, and it embarrassed him. And adding that he had said to her, whoops, I'm sorry, or, you know, something like that as he, after grazing her breast, despite murdering her minutes later. <laughs> I don't even... I don't even understand that. He's still embarrassed that he had touched her breast. But in his mind, he still knew that just in moments he was going to kill her. Now, he put both the women's bodies in his trunk of the Ford Galaxy, returned to his apartment. But on the way, he was stopped by a police officer for having a broken taillight. But the officer did not detect the corpses in the car. Kemper's roommate was not at home. So he took the bodies into his apartment. Now, ain't that crazy how just if, if, if. But I mean, the officer had no reason. And Kemper was a very, very likable person. But they could have ended it right there. But they didn't. So he's back at the apartment. The two girls are dead. He takes photographs of them. And he has sexual, cor uh, sexual intercourse with the naked corpses before he starts to dismember them. He then puts the body parts into plastic bags, which he later abandoned near Loma Prieta Mountain. Now, before disposing of Marianne, Pichas and Lucheza's severed heads in a ravine, Kemper engaged... Well... And your mato with both of them, he performs sex with her mouth of a severed head. In August, uh, Amory's skull was found on the Loma Prieta mountain. An extensive search failed to turn up any of uh, the rest of her body. And there was no... Uh, No, any body parts ever. No, any sign of uh, Anita Mary. Not a trace of her. Now, on the evening of September the 14th, 1972, Kemper picked up a 15-year-old dance student named Akito Ku, who had decided to hitchhike to a dance class after missing her bus. He again drove to a remote area where he pulled a gun on Ku before accidentally locking himself out of his car. However, Ku let him back inside as he had previously gained the 15-year-old's trust while holding her at gunpoint. This man was able to talk a victim that he has pulled a gun on and drove to the middle of nowhere. He is able to talk her in to letting him back in the car. He gets back in the car that she has unlocked and let him back in. And what does he do? He proceeds to choke her, unconscious, rape her, and kill her. Then he packs her body into the trunk and went to a nearby bar to have a few drinks before going back home to his apartment. Now he later confessed that after exiting the bar, he opened the trunk and admiring his catch like a fisherman, just looking at his, his trophies back there. Now back in his apartment, he had sexual intercourse with the corpse, before dismembering 
and disposing of the remains in a similar manner as his previous two victims. Ku's mother called the police to report the disappearance of her daughter and put up hundreds of flyers asking for any information, but she did not receive any response whatsoever regarding her poor daughter's location or status. January 7, 1973, Kemper, who had moved back in with his mother by this time, was driving around the Cabrillo College campus when he picked up 18-year-old student Cynthia Ann Cindy Shaw. He drove to a sequestered wooded area, and he fatally shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He then placed her body in the trunk of his car, drove to his mother's house, where he kept her body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. When his mother left for work the next morning, he had sexual intercourse with the corpse removed the bullet from Shaw's body before dismembering and decapitating her in his mother's bathtub. Now, Kemper had kept Shroll's severed head for several days, and he, he regu regularly engaged in intercourse with her head before finally burying it in his mother's garden facing upward toward her bedroom after his arrest, he stated that he did this because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. Now, he discarded the rest of Shaw's remains by throwing them off a cliff. Over the course of the following few weeks, all but her head and right hand were discovered and pieced together like a macabre jigsaw puzzle. A pathologist determined that, Shaw's that Shaw had been cut into pieces with a power saw. Now, on February 5th, 1973, after a heated argument with his mother, Kemper left his house in search of a possible victim or victims with heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area. Students were advised to only accept rides from cars with university stickers on them. But guess what? Kemper had such a sticker because his mother worked at the University of California, Santa Cruz. So he encountered 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Helen Allison. According to Kemper, Thorpe entered his car first, which reassured Lou and the... Uh, also to enter. He then fatally shot Thorpe and Liu with his 22 caliber pistol and wrapped their bodies in blankets. Kemper again brought his victims back to his mother's house. This time, he beheaded them in his car and carried the headless corpses into his mother's house to have sexual intercourse with them. He then dismembered the bodies, removed the bullets to prevent identification, and the next morning discarded their remains. Some remains were found at Eden Canyon a week later and more were found near Highway 1 in March. Now when questioned in an interview as to why he decapitated his victims, he explained, the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. Now, on April the 20th, 1973, after coming home from a party, 52-year-old Clarnell Elizabeth Strandberg awakened her son with her arrival. That's Mommy Dearest coming home from a party. We'll be right back.
Now this being really what uh, Kemper's main issue as an adult was, even as a child, but all these women that he killed were surrogates for this final showdown between him and his mother. Clarnell Stromberg, Strandberg, April 20, 1973, after coming home from a party, 52-year-old Clarnell Elizabeth Strandberg awakened her son with her arrival. While sitting in her bed reading a book, she noticed Kemper enter her room and said to him, I suppose you're going to want to sit up and uh, talk all night now. Kemper replied, no, good night. He then patiently waited for her to fall asleep before returning to bludgeon her with a claw hammer and slit her throat with a knife. He, sub sub subsequent he subsequently decapitated her and engaged with sex with her severed head before using it as a dartboard. Kemper stated that he put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for over an hour, threw darts at it, and ultimately smashed her face in. He also cut her tongue and larynx out and put them in the garbage disposal. But however, the garbage disposal could not break down the tough vocal cords and ejected the tissue back into the sink. Now Kemper later said that seemed so appropriate as much as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. Kemper then, he hides his mother's corpse in a closet, went out to drink at the nearby bar. Upon his return, he invited his mother's best friend over, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor Sally Hallett. He invited her over to the house to have dinner, maybe watch a movie. So when Hallett arrived, Kemper strangled her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Hallett had gone away together on a vacation. Now He uh, subsequently put Hallett's corpse in a closet, obscured uh, any outward signs of a disturbance, and left a note to the police it read, Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incompetent, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. So Kemper flees the scene. He drives nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado, taking caffeine pills to stay awake for over a thousand-mile journey. He has three guns, hundreds of rounds of ammunition. He's believed that he is the target of an active manhunt. People are coming to get him, that they have found out. They've got his mom, his mom's friend. They're going to have a shootout with the police. But after not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mother, Hallett, so when he arrived in Pueblo, he found a phone booth and just decided to call the police. He confessed to the murders of his mother and Hallett, but the police did not take him seriously and told him to call back later. So several hours later, Kemper called again asking to speak to an officer he personally knew. He confessed to that officer of killing his mother and Hallett and waited for the police to arrive and take him into custody, where he also confessed to the murders of the six students. They almost didn't solve this one in hell. They had a guy confessing to it. When asked in a later interview why he turned himself in, Kemper said, the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time emotionally 
I couldn't handle it much longer. Towards the end there, I, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. Now, Kemper was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder on May 7th, 1973. He was assigned to Chief Public Defender of Santa Cruz County Attorney Jim Jackson. Now, due to Kemper's explicit and detailed confession, the only other option they had was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Now, Kemper had tried twice to commit suicide in custody, and his trial went ahead on October 23, 1973. Three court-appointed psychiatrists found Kemper to be legally sane. One of the psychiatrists, Dr. Joel Fort, investigated his juvenile records and the diagnosis that he was once psychotic. Fort also interviewed Kemper, including under truth serum, and relayed to the court that Kemper had engaged in cannibalism, alleging that he sliced flesh from the legs of his victim and cooked and consumed these strips of flesh in a casserole. Nevertheless, Fort determined that Kemper was fully, fully aware in each case and stated that he enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled a murderer. Kemper later recanted his confession of cannibalism. California used the M. Naughton standard, which held that for a defendant to establish a defense on the grounds of insanity, it must be clearly proved that at the time of committing the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of mind and not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, he, he did not know that what he was doing was wrong. And Kemper appeared to have shown that the nature of his acts was wrong, he knew it, and he had shown signs of malice forethought. So, on November 1st, Kemper actually took the stand. He testified that he killed the victims because he wanted them for, for himself, for myself, he said, like possessions, and attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could only have been committed by someone with an aberrant mind. Aberrant, aberrant mind. He said... Two beings inhabited his body, and when the killer personality took over, it was kind of like blacking out. So he felt, I feel, that he was smart and witty enough to talk himself into sanity, that he was going to be smart enough to talk himself back into insanity. On November 8, 1973, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours before declaring Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. He asked for the death penalty, requesting death by torture. However, with a memorandum placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California, he instead received seven years to life for each count with these terms to be served concurrently and was sentenced to the California Medical Facility. Now, in the California Medical Facility, Kemper was incarcerated in the same prison block as other notorious criminals such as Herbert Mullen, Charles Manson. Kemper showed particular disdain for Mullen, who committed his murders at the same time and in the same area as Kemper. He described Mullen as a just a cold-blooded killer, killing everybody he saw for no good reason. Kemper manipulated and physically intimidated Mullen, who, at five foot seven inches, was more than a foot shorter than him. Kemper stated that Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people when someone tried to watch TV. So, Kemper said, I threw water on him to shut him up. Then, when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. That was effective because pretty soon he'd ask permission to sing. That's called behavior modification treatment.
So you got Kemper ruling the roost there. Now he was uh, he remains alive today. Kemper uh, remains among the general population and is considered a model prisoner. He was in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists and uh, was an accomplished craftsman of ceramic cups. He was also a prolific reader of books on tape for the blind. A 1987 Los, Ange Los Angeles Times article stated that he was the coordinator of the prison's program and had personally spent over 5,000 hours narrating books with several hundred completed recordings to his name. He was retired from these positions in 2015 after he experienced a stroke and was declared mentally disabled. Shit, sorry. He was declared medically disabled. They declared him mentally disabled years ago. Medically disabled. He received his first rules violation report in 2016 for failing to provide a urine sample. Um, in all those years, that's all that he had gotten in trouble for. While in prison, Kemper had participated in a number of interviews including a segment in the 1982 documentary The Killing of America, as well as an appearance in the 1984 documentary Murder, No Apparent Motive. His interviews have contributed to the understanding of the mind of serial killers. FBI profiler John Douglas described Kemper as among the brightest prison inmates he ever interviewed and capable of rare insight for a violent criminal. Kemper is forthcoming about the nature of his crimes and has stated that he uh, participated in the interviews to save others like himself from killing. At the end of his murder, no apparent motive interview, he said, There's somebody out there that is watching this and hasn't done that, hasn't killed people, and wants to, and rages inside and struggles with that feeling, or is so sure that they have it under control. They need to talk to somebody about it. Trust somebody enough to sit down and talk about something that isn't a crime. Thinking that way isn't a crime. Doing it isn't just a crime. It's a horrible thing. It doesn't know when to quit, and it can't be stopped easily once it starts. He also conducted an interview with French writer Bourgogne in 1991. Now, believe it or not, Kemper was first eligible for parole in 1979. He was denied parole that year, and as well as parole hearings in 1980, 81, 82, he subsequently, subsequently waived his right to a hearing in 1985. He was denied parole in 88, where he said, Society is not ready in any shape or form for me. I can't fault them for that. He was denied in 91 and 94. He then waived his right in 97 and 2002. Now, he did attend the next hearing in 2007, where he was again denied parole. Prosecutor Simons at Adrian Simon said, We don't care how much of a model prisoner he is because of the enormity of his crimes. Kemper waived his right to a hearing again in 2012. Kemper was denied parole in 2017 and is next eligible in 2024. Now, you know, Kemper has influenced the BAU. He's the mind of a serial killer was put the book through Edmund Kemper. Kemper has influenced many works of film and literature. He was an inspiration for the character of Buffalo Bill in Thomas Harris' 88 novel, The Silence of the Lambs, and its 91 film adaptation. Uh, like Kemper, Bill fatally shoots his grandparents as a teenager. Um, 
Dean Koontz cited Kemper as an inspiration for character Edgar Vess in the 96 novel Intensity. The character Patrick Bateman in the 2000 film American Psycho mistakenly attributes a quote by Kemper to Ed Gein saying, you know what Ed Gein said about women, and it was uh, Ed Kemper. He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. The other part wonders what her head would look like on a stick. This is The Weekly Podcast. Let's just do a slight recap on Edmund Kemper, born December 18, 1948. Alias was the co-ed killer, the co-ed butcher. Characteristics of his crime were necrophilia, dismemberment, and having sexual relations with a severed head. Number of victims total, 10. His date of murders were 1964. He killed both his grandmother and grandfather. And then from 1972 to 1973, he killed six others and then ending with killing his mother and his mother's best friend. So a total of 10. His murder method was shooting, striking with a hammer, and strangulation. His known victims are Edmund Kemper Sr., 72, grandfather, Maud Kemper, 66, grandmother, Mary Pesci, 18, Anita Lucheza, 18, Akio Ku, 15, Cindy Shaw, 19, Rosalind Thorpe, 24, Allison Liu, 23, Cornell Stromberg, 52, his mother, and Sarah Hallett, 59, his mother's friend. His crime location was California, and he is sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole. Now, he has been up for his next time for parole was in 2024. Uh, timeline of known murders was August the 27th, 1964, he killed Edmund and Maude Kemper. May the 7th of 1972, he killed, killed Marianne Pesci and Anita Lucheza. September 14th, 1972, he killed Akio Ku. January 8th, 1973, he had murdered and killed Cindy Shaw. February 5th, 1973, he killed Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu. And April 20th, 1973, he killed Clarnell Strandberg, his mother, and Sarah Hallett. Kemper's IQ was measured at 145, and his quote was this. Like I said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet, and treat her right. And the other part of me wonders what her head would look like on a stick. If I killed them, you know, they couldn't reject me as a man. It was more or less making a doll out of a human being and carrying out my fantasies with a doll, a living human doll. 